Happy Easter, everyone. Welcome to the Faith at Work Sermon Podcast. I'm Pastor Jim Melvin. And when I said Happy Easter, everyone, you may have noticed that I put the emphasis on everyone. As I try to point out each week, although I come from a Christian perspective, and I suppose that most of my audience is at least nominally Christian, I strive for inclusivity so that my message will have meaning to Christians, Jews, Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, whatever religious tradition you come from. Or, I hope that you can find some meaning here, even if you don't prescribe to any particular religious tradition. I also hope to model religious tolerance and inclusivity as we seek a more just and peaceful world. My only assumption about my listeners is that you have spiritual needs to be met. I can say Happy Easter this week because the Easter season continues on for several weeks until the season of Pentecost begins. It's only appropriate that we take some time to savor the good news of the resurrection. It's not only good news, it's the best news. However, for those of us who are Christians, we have a responsibility to be sure that what is good news for us doesn't become bad news for others. In our current environment, with a surge in anti-Semitism and violence against Jewish people in our country and around the world, it's important that we don't, don't somehow lay blame on Jewish people, ancient or modern, for the death of Jesus Christ, thus making them our perpetual and hated enemies. Now, I don't pretend or intend to speak for my Jewish brothers and sisters. They can most appropriately do that. I can, however, on behalf of at least most Christians, express our solidarity with those who have been and continue to be persecuted for their faith. And I sincerely refer to members of the Jewish community as brothers and sisters, because we are all children of Abraham. When the Gospel writer Luke recorded his history for the early followers of Jesus in the years following Jesus' death and resurrection in the book of Acts, he tells a story of Peter addressing the Jews of Jerusalem about the meaning of the events surrounding Jesus' life and death. Peter was instrumental in founding the Christian church and was referred to by Paul as the apostle to the Jews. The following speech by Peter may give us some insights to the relationship between Christians and Jews that can inform our actions today. Our gospel reads, But Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea, and all who live in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you, and listen to what I say. You that are Israelites, listen to what I have to say. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with deeds of power, wonders, and signs that God did through him among you, as you yourselves know, this man handed over to you according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of those outside the law. 
But God raised him up, having freed him from death, because it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. Moreover, my flesh will live in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One experience corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Fellow Israelites, I may say to you confidently of your ancestor David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would put one of his descendants on his throne. Foreseeing this, David spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, saying, He was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh experience corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that all of us are witnesses. Here ends the Gospel. Peter identifies with his Jewish audience. He addresses them as fellow Israelites and speaks of our ancestor David. However, he also says that Jesus is the one that you crucified, killed by the hands of those outside the law. Now, by those outside the law, he is referring to the Romans, who are not subject to the Jewish law. The Romans carried out the execution, but he clearly lays the responsibility for the execution of Jesus at the feet of the Jews, as though the Roman executioners were merely hired hitmen. You can see how this passage plays into the fact that Jews fell victim to the anti-Semitic trope, Christ killers. And I can understand why a Jewish person visiting a Christian church might feel uncomfortable as this Bible passage is read. Today I'm going to take a cursory look at the history of anti-Semitism to add some context to our Bible reading and try to assure that Easter does not bring with it bad news for anyone especially Jews. As I began to think about this subject, it became apparent to me that anti-Semitism is not just one thing throughout history. All anti-Semitism is, by definition, hatred of Jews, but it has taken such different forms and has so many root causes that I'm tempted to talk about anti-Semitisms, plural. The earliest example of anti-Semitism goes back to one of the most ancient stories of the Bible, the enslavement of the Israelites by the Egyptians. The real oppression is attributed in the Bible with a fear that the Israelites had assimilated too well into Egyptian society. We read in the first chapter of Exodus, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply 
and it happen in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us and so go up out of the land. Here ends the reading. The discrimination became so bad that the Israelites were forced to flee Egypt to escape Pharaoh and thus began their long journey to the promised land. Their early history, once they arrive there, is fraught with enemies all around them. But under King David, they eventually formed a powerful kingdom. After establishing a successful kingdom, the problems weren't over for the Jews. They fell victim to the brutal oppression of a succession of powerful empires, such as the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and the Persians. And yet, the Jewish culture, religion, and language survived and flourished. As was true of their problems with the Egyptians, their tenacity and commitment to their religion and culture was a factor in their being targeted by other regional powers. Other people were afraid of them. As the Christian era began, a new breed of anti-Semitism evolved out of a growing competition between Christianity and Judaism. What differs with the evolution of Christian anti-Semitism is that it came from within. Jesus himself was a Jew. Many of his prominent followers and apostles, including Peter and Paul, were Jews. Today's reading, in which Peter overtly blames his fellow Israelites for the death of Jesus, is the Gospel writer Luke's not-so-veiled attempt to say that God intended Christianity, which eventually took the form of the institution of the church, to supplant and replace the Jewish religion. Following the vicious attacks of Israel by the Romans in the years after Jesus died, that reality almost came about. The Jews were dispersed to the four corners of the earth, and their connection with the promised land was severed. Christianity, on the other hand, thrived after it became the official religion of the Roman Empire in the 4th century under the Emperor Constantine. Through the Middle Ages, the Church grew in power in developing European kingdoms. Crusades were organized, and Jews were systematically persecuted throughout Europe and the Middle Eastern world. A new brand of anti-Semitism arrived based on an emerging nationalism and a quest for political power. The Jewish people, in various parts of the world, developed differing cultures. But unlike any other religious group, they maintained their identity as the chosen people of God. They also maintained their status as an object of resentment and hatred around the world. In modern times, a new form of anti-Semitism has arrived that rivaled the persecutions of millennia millennia past, the emergence of Nazism and white supremacy. By the late 19th century, nation, culture, and race had become interchangeable terms. Jews and Judaism were also habitually depicted as the opposite of the highest values of a nation, a racialized, politicized, and programmatic anti-Semitism emerged as a force in Western and Central Europe based on the Aryan myth 
which depicted Semites as a subversive group bent on ascendancy. Hitler capitalized on a lethal brew of ethnic hatred for the Jews that led to the horrors of the Holocaust and almost accomplished his goal of wiping God's chosen people from the face of the earth. Although Hitler fell short of his goal and the formation of the modern state of Israel allowed a remnant of Jews to return to the promised land, the threat to the Jewish people has far from ended. Although the world promised never to forget the Holocaust, many of us have forgotten. Various iterations of anti-Semitism and anti-Semitic violence are popping up daily, drawing uncritically from all the hate-filled myths and false histories of past human history. And people of the Christian faith play a key part in the midst. So during this Easter season, how can what we proclaim as the good news of Easter be good news for all of God's people? The first thing that we can do is forcefully and publicly acknowledge the common heritage between Christians and Jews. We all trace our heritage back to Abraham. The stories of the Old Testament serve as a common touchstone for our faiths. Even our worship calendars and traditions are related. The most relevant example at this time of year is that Jesus celebrated the Jewish Passover with his disciples on the night in which he was betrayed. The Jewish Passover, then, serves as the origin for Christian communion, the most important ritual in the Christian church. The story of God's faithfulness to his persecuted people is at the root of both of our histories. Official acts by church bodies can hasten the demise of anti-Semitism. John Paul II supported greater dialogue between Catholics and Jews but did not explicitly support dual covenant theology. On November 17, 1980, John Paul II delivered a speech to the Jews of Berlin in which he discussed his views of Catholic-Jewish relations. In it, John Paul II asserted that God's covenant with the Jewish people was never revoked. The church also now contends that Jews did not need to be converted to attain salvation. Similar progress has been made among Protestant denominations in officially reconciling our differences with the Jewish community. The most important way that Christians can fight anti-Semitism, though, is simply to be good Christians. No less than Jesus himself laid it all out there. When he asked what the greatest commandment was, he quoted the Old Testament. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And he considered everyone his neighbors. Both Jews and Christians share this command to put love at the center of our lives. Let our love drive out all hate from our lives. If we look at the sweep of biblical history, we will see that there is a definite trajectory to what God is doing in this world. God's history is moving from bondage and slavery toward liberty and freedom. God's history is moving from injustice to justice, 
God's history is moving from hatred to love. God's history is moving from war to peace. God's history is moving from division to unity. And ultimately, God's history is moving from suffering and death to joy and life. Those moves sum up the good news of Easter Easter for everybody. At this point in our history, what is required is patience, tolerance, and mutual respect. Neither Christians nor Jews should be expected to alter their beliefs or practices that are not harmful to others. But that said, Christians' historical proximity to the horrific events of the Holocaust require that a disproportionate responsibility for reconciliation lies with Christians. For those who would say that the sin of the Holocaust is a sin of a previous generation, I would quote from Numbers 14, The Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgressions, but he by no means clears the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. Pardon the iniquity of this people, I pray, according to the greatness of your mercy, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. I've visited Holocaust memorials around the world, including Yad Vashem in Israel and the United States Memorial Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. I've visited the remains of several concentration camps in Europe where the mass extermination of Jews occurred. Visiting memorials and shedding tears on the soil where so many Jews shed their blood will not alter the past. What is required of us is true repentance, an acknowledgement of our legacy of sin, and a willingness to do what we can to assure that nothing like this will ever happen again. And that means we must stridently refute and rebuke anti-Semitic lies and violence everywhere. How Jews respond to our attempts at reconciliation is up to them. And frankly, I'm surprised that the hatred of anti-Semitism doesn't flow in the opposite direction. In his book, The Sunflower, Holocaust survivor Simon Wiesenthal tells of a dying guard in his concentration camp asking him for forgiveness. The soldier, Carl, was adamant that he needed Simon to hear his gruesome story in order to save himself, and more importantly, he needed Simon's forgiveness to be able to rest peacefully. Simon recognized that Carl was showing true repentance, but Simon could not decide if that was enough to forgive him. He also knew that Carl was ignorant, selfish, and a member of a group that had taken away the lives of his friends and family. When Carl finished his story and asked forgiveness from Simon, Simon became psychologically overwhelmed with everything that had happened. His choice was not to forgive the dying man. He chose simply to walk out of the room in silence. Countless people have expounded on whether or not Wiesenthal should have forgiven the man. 
Ultimately, that is the decision of a person wronged. From our perspective, however, we must be able to live without being forgiven. Living and dying with our guilt is a price that we pay for sin. Fortunately, as Christians, we live with the assurance of God's ultimate forgiveness. So let me say one final time, Happy Easter to everyone. May you find peace and happiness in the promise that our faithful God will make us new and give us all eternal life. Amen. Thank you for joining me today. May God bless you and keep you. May God's face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May God look upon you with favor and give you peace.